Hello, and welcome to Mind Matters News. Uh, this is Dr. Michael Egner, and I have the great pleasure today to uh, talk with Joshua Ferris. Uh, Dr. Ferris is a professor of theology, uh, and I think it's going to be a wonderful discussion. Uh, the topic today is why Cartesian dualism. Uh, in this episode, we'll discuss the merits of a theory of the mind-body relationship in contrast to alternative viewpoints such as materialism, hylomorphism, and Berkeleyan idealism. Materialism is a dead end because of the phenomenon of quality of qualia, rather, and the hard problem of consciousness. There's also a quality problem in materialism, too, but that's a different issue. Uh, some form of dualism or immaterialism can satisfy these concerns. Cartesian dualism has become sort of a whipping boy in philosophy, theology, and the sciences, even more so than its cousins in the, in the dualist family. Why is this? Does Cartesianism have any advantages over the alternatives? Joshua Ferris has argued yes. In fact, it does. And there's one feature of persons that seems to require Cartesianism, but Cartesianism is compatible with versions of idealism and possibly even hylomorphism. One of the interesting implications of Cartesianism that needs spelling out is its theistic grounding. Some consider this a weakness, but others see this as a welcome and attractive feature of Cartesianism. My guest uh, is uh, Dr. Joshua Ferris. Uh, he is a professor of theology of science at Missional University. He is also a freelance writer for several academic news uh, outlets and on topics of the soul, science, and faith, and public theology. Uh, he is a consultant, writer, and product developer for Raising Families. He was the executive director at Alpine Christian School and a part-time lecturer at Auburn University at Montgomery. He's also the director of Trinity School of Theology. Prior to that, he was the Chester and Margaret Polish uh, professor at Mundelin Seminary, University of St. Mary of the Lake, and assistant pro professor of theology at Houston Baptist University. Uh, he's authored a number of volumes, and he is co-editor of the Rutledge uh, Handbook of Idealism and uh, Immaterialism, and uh, it is a great pleasure and an honor to have Joshua join us today. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm, I'm fascinated by your insights into Cartesian dualism, uh, and I'm, uh, of course, very interested in the question of the mind-body relationship. For our, our listeners, what is Cartesian dualism, uh, and um, how can it help us understand the relationship between the mind and the body? Yeah, sure. Good. Yeah, so there's um, Cartesianism is a is kind of a tradition. It is a tradition following from Rene Descartes, and so it's a tradition that's developed over time. And there are a few of us around today who defends some sort of Cartesian view, and um, it's a tradition that's developed. And and what that means is, and we can get into this. What that means is it's it, we're not signing on to all that Descartes said, of course, and we're not affirming all the the naughty ideas that he had that have had um, a, a sort of denigrating uh, view of the body or a negative influence on on science and and how we practice science, which there's lots of critiques out there uh, in that respect. But it is um, within a sort of family of what's called substance dualism, a substance dualism view of of uh, human constitution. So if we're talking specifically about human constitution or locally, how, how it is that humans are composed or constituted, substance dualism is basically the view that there are uh, two kinds of substances or two types of substances. In other words, property bearers with some intrinsic sort of unity to each. 
And so there's a, oftentimes when you think of substance dualism, there's a property bearer of, of the soul or a mind that has um, properties of a mental sort. And then there's uh, properties of a material kind or a body that is distinct from the uh, mind itself. And so uh, Cartesianism would be within that sort of broader family of substance dualism. And on a Cartesian understanding, there's something unique about the, the mind-body relationship in contrast to other potential variations of substance dualism. If you're following somebody like uh, Richard Swinburne or a John Foster, who are both Cartesian dualists of sorts, they would say, and I would agree, tend to agree with them, something like this, uh, that uh, I am just my soul. I just am my soul. I am my soul that has a body or has some sort of singular relation or interactive relationship to my body, but my body is not me, strictly speaking. I'm not an animal, as some other views would say. I am a soul, and particularly I am my soul. And so the, the soul is, this is what's important, really. The soul is the core or the essential part of me. It's the thing that carries along my personal identity. And so you might contrast this, say, with some sort of a Thomist view that you might call some Thomists, and there's all sorts of different views out there, so I don't want to simplify it too much, but some Thomists would say they, would, they, they are substance dualists themselves, and they would say that, that I am my body, but I am a particular kind of body that has a principle, a formal principle, um, that, that, it, that does the sort of informing work of the matter. And uh, so you might take it that uh, when there is this composition of, of, of the material uh, with this forming principle, we have a distinction between uh, the material itself and the um, material as informed. And so you might think of, for example, think of the marble statue where there's, there's sort of the marble and uh, it's the sort of the material, and then there's this forming principle. And some would argue that on that basis, there is a substantial distinction between the two. And so some Thomas would uh, move in that direction. So that's distinct, say, from arguably from a sort of uh, a more uh, rounded Cartesian view that says that I just am my soul. I am not strictly speaking identical to my body, and uh, how you work that relationship out between the soul and the body, well, that becomes a little bit more complicated. And obviously, there's different views on that. But the, the important point is, is that I just am my soul. And my soul is the co core part of me that carries along my own personal identity. The thing that I think bothers me the most about the Cartesian view, and, and I should first say that I have a great deal of sympathy for it. And I actually think that Thomism needs to be understood with respect for for that view because uh, for, for several reasons it, it make it, it it allows the Thomistic perspective i think to hew closer to our our lived experience but the the first problem i have with the cartesian view is that whatever value the cartesian dualism has in understanding the mind body relationship i think it is as a general metaphysical view um really deficient that is a Cartesianism is bad metaphysics. Uh, I think it's better mind-body metaphysics than it is general metaphysics, but I think the general metaphysics is pretty bad. You know, animals aren't machines, and uh, things that exist in the world are a great deal more than just matter extended in space. 
and so how do you feel about the, the, the general metaphysical presuppositions of Cartesianism? And if they are significantly deficient, does that make the mind-body aspect of Cartesianism less, less valuable? Yeah, yeah. So I think um, with respect to what I am committed to as a Cartesian, I am making a fairly um, minimal claim that maybe maybe it can be shown that that minimal claim has implications that are negative in the way that is often sort of characterized or um, projected back onto Descartes and uh, the metaphysics that he inspired. But it seems to me that the the sort of claim that I just am my soul yeah, um, is is the sort of minimalist sort of Cartesian commitment that I'm committed to that I think is the product product of common sense, a sort of common sense epistemology. And it's the product of a sort of um, a various arguments that we could get into and talk about that are not always readily hospitable, maybe to certainly not hospitable to materialism, but not hospitable obviously hospitable to sort of variations of, of Thomas, Thomism or Thomas dualism. So if we think about various uh, views about like a myriological replacement and, and uh, the modal argument, uh, the modal argument, which uh, someone might advance and say something like, if I'm the very same thing as my body, then whatever is true of me is true of my body, but my body may survive without me. And therefore I'm not the very same thing as my body. There are certain modal intuitions that seem right and seem confirmed also by uh, data that's out there, like near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences, as well as a sort of a theological tradition that I am committed to, and that is that I will exist someday. Uh, I hope to exist. I believe I will exist disembodied. And so that Cartesianism is certainly more at home with, uh, or provides maybe a better or stronger accounting for those sorts of modal claims that seem conceivable. So that minimalist commitment is, I think, uh, what is um, really the strength of Cartesianism. But in that, I don't think I'm committed to say the idea that the world is merely sort of a meat machine or that the, 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 the world lacks a sort of teleology or that the world, the natural world that is in the natural um uh, organisms, physical organisms, are sort of uh, just uh, me uh, mechanistically explained all the way, all the way down um, to their sort of component atomistic parts. Um, so I don't think a Cartesian, at least as I've defended Cartesianism, I don't think um, that I am or you have to be committed to those other sort of metaphysical commitments that are often characteristic of, of Descartes' A larger metaphysical program. So I'm less interested, I guess, in defending those um, and, and more interested in defending this more core claim, this minimalist claim. So I could call it kind of a neo-Cartesianism. Uh, that's what I'm more interested in, this idea that I just am my soul. I am not a composite of my soul and body or mind and body. I am not a complex and so my personal identity is not complicated in, say, the way that a materialist or arguably a Thomist would be. I, I certainly agree that, 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 that that's a strength of the uh, at least neo-Cartesian -Cart way of looking at things, and it's a, and it's a very real strength. It's, 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 it's something I think Thomism is somewhat lacking. 
I, to me, the, the, the two great strengths of the um, Cartesian view is, as you pointed out, it, it gives more grounding to the sense that we all have that there's an I there, that there's a, a single metaphysically simple unitary thing that is us. The Thomas view, can, I think, has a great deal to say for it. But I've always wondered myself, well, where's the I in all of this? Uh, and and we, we all have that sense of what Peter Kreft calls the heart, like who we are. And it's not just one of the powers of, of our soul. It's, it's us. And where's us? And the Cartesian view helps with that. The other aspect of the Cartesian view that I think is, is uh, particularly strong is it seems to accord very well with near-death experiences. Uh, there's a lot of things in near-death experiences that I think are much more readily explainable from the Cartesian view of the soul than it is from the Thomistic or other kinds of views uh, of the soul. One problem with the Cartesian view is that it seems to make it difficult to know why or in what way we, we would know a particular soul is associated with a particular body. I mean, let's say that uh, my friend Joe and I came into work one morning and, and Joe said, you know, well, uh, I'm Mike now. His soul is, is here. And, and, and I said, well, I'm Joe. You know, we switched last night. And how would you disprove that? I mean, if the, if the, if the body is, is just the ship that the soul is piloting, well, pilots can switch ships. Uh, and, and that gets to the modern problem that we're having with transgenderism. Uh, that is that if, if the Cartesian view is correct, a person who's transgender could very readily say, well, yeah, you're, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a woman's soul in a man's body. Uh, whereas the hylomorphic view would be, no, you're not. <laughs> that your body is very much a part of you, and um, and you you have a, a spiritual or psychological problem, but you can't be a woman's soul in a man's body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's um, yeah, that's an interesting problem. So I think um, there there certainly are uh, those those intuitions uh, that that I find uh, appealing. Uh, those intuitions that um, sort of body swapping intuitions is what you're talking about, and and so um, you, I, I'm reminded of that movie being John Malkovich. Have you seen that movie? Uh, no, no, but I've heard about it. Okay, well, um, so it's a fascinating film because there's um, John Malkovich. Um, there's this thirty-three and a half floor, or something like that. People can actually go up to that that partial floor, and there's this little portal, and they can slide down this portal, and they end up somehow accessing some of the items of of John Malkovich's uh, perception, and so they're able to experience perceptually experience life through his body. So you have females actually who, who are able to access. And um, so it raises this sort of uh, similar problem that you're, you're, you're talking about. And certainly that fits uh, more readily with the sort of Cartesian view than, than the Thomist view. And that's, um, that's a concern. So I think uh, obviously body swapping intuitions are, are, um, more readily, readily at home with, with Cartesianism. And that's why um, uh, there, there, there are these uh, intuitions that we have when we think about the, the possibility of, of, of uh, existing or persisting out of the body or in a sort of near-death experience. I think those are, uh, that's kind of the trade-off. Um, but I don't know if it's as severe as people have made it out. If... Um, if we sort of tweak our sort of Cartesianism 
along the lines of something like uh, an emergentist view. So if we think about, say, something like William Hasker's view, Hasker affirms a kind of uh, emergent dualist view where he says that uh, the soul is or the mind is um, a, f- a phenomenal unity of consciousness, that it is the it's the sort of binding force or the thing that provides unity to the items in one's uh, phenomenal consciousness, uh, kind of like um, if we think about the body and the soul relationship, it's similar. He uses the example of the magnet and the magnetic field in which when the the, the magnet when there's certain conditions that are met, the magnet gives rise to this magnetic field. And so there's certainly a distinction between the two, but uh, there is this close, intimate connection between the field and the magnet that are not um, easily separable. I think uh, most neo-Cartesians today, uh, like myself, like Richard Swinburne, John Foster, now John Foster takes his view in an idealist direction, but Um, I think most would affirm something like an emergentist view that brings the soul, at least functionally speaking, brings the soul more closely connected with the body such that we can at least intuitively say it makes sense that when I hit my head on the top of the door, it's actually affecting my states of consciousness. Or like uh, the last couple of nights when I've uh, uh, been up, really late or early into the morning, it affects my states of consciousness the way that my, uh, the way that I treat my body. And certainly that's the case. If we take it that there is some sort of emergentist aspect to uh, how the soul comes to be in the world, I think we can provide some sort of accounting that brings the soul more closely aligned with uh, the body that we've been given that I just commonsensically take for granted when I uh, interact with the world through my body and through the various controls of my body. It's so it's not as um, as Gil- somebody like Gilbert Ryle. The picture isn't quite as simplistic as say uh, a person that's in a ship who who has these various controls in the ship, but this person could actually step outside the ship and jump in another ship. There's actually a more fine-grained, functional, um, functionally integrated relationship uh, between the body and the soul. But 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 wouldn't that just be a hylomorphism? I mean, if, if you get to the point where you're really sort of talking about form and matter, which is obviously the, the more fine-grained, functional relationship, then it would just be a hylomorphic view. Well, maybe. I mean, I would take the hylomorphic... I, I guess I was taking the hylomorphic view to along a uh, sort of a more robust... Uh, to to implicate a more robust ontology uh, of of matter form right. um, relationship, and um, the emergentist view certainly em- most emergentists, um, whether they're sort of non-reductive physicalists or they are um, dualists like William Hasker, the sort of strongest or sort of emergentist view, certainly they would be reticent to call their view hylomorphic. Right. Um, I've long had. Um problems wrapping my mind around emergentism. It's, it sticks in my craw, as one might say. Um, I don't understand it. I, I don't understand what emergence is, and I don't see how it is a level of explanation. It, it seems to me kind of magical. What is emergence, and, and, and of what value is it in understanding things like this? Yeah, well, it's, um, 
so the way that Hasker and others um, define it, uh, Timothy O'Connor is obviously one uh, defender of uh, what he calls an emergent individualist view, which is just a version of non-reductive physicalism, which says that uh, there are these um, properties or powers that at some suitable, suitable level of uh, complexity give rise to a suitable level of neural complexity just gives rise in a law-like fashion to uh, consciousness and free will and these sorts of perspectives or these sorts of powers. And so Hasker is building upon that sort of emergentist set of literature and saying something something similar in that um, what is what actually emerges is, is actually substantial. And so what is actually required if we are going to have say, downward causation or uh, freedom of the will or a first-person perspective is a substance of the sort that emerges from uh, a suitably complex neural structure and central nervous system. He says that what we need is something like a thisness, a, a, a sort of um, what he calls a, he, he calls it some sort of uh, phenomenal thisness. And this is where phenomenal consciousness becomes really important for him and why he ends up affirming uh, a kind of substantial dualism, um, because he doesn't think that uh, phenomenal consciousness can be made sense of as a non-reductive physicalist, but rather it requires this additional feature that binds together the items within one's phenomenal consciousness. The fact that I can go out and experience a green pasture and I experience all the elements in the green pasture, including the, the, the sort of the wind blowing the flower out in the middle of the green pasture. I experience it as, as one unified field and I can isolate and pick out various items within my field of consciousness. But uh, there is something about that that is unique and um, unlike anything that we have in the physical world that requires what Hasker would say is a thisness. So emergence is, yeah, emergence may be magical. The kind of emergence that I am committed to is a, uh, is a more sort of minimalist um, commitment, uh, emergence is commitment that could be accounted for by way of simply um, uh, just theistic intentions. Why, why am I connected to this body? Well, simply as John Foster would say, because well, because God set it up that way. I, and I, I thought a great deal about emergence. It's I guess everybody has their bugbear. That's, that's that's one of my bugbears, because whenever I hear it described at the end of the description, I really feel as though I don't know any more about what's going on than I did before the description. It doesn't seem to me to explain anything. What emergence is, from my perspective is it's a psychological phenomenon, meaning it, it's um, the discovery that something is behaving on a large scale that you didn't expect from knowledge of its behavior uh, on a small scale. So, you know, why would H2O molecules feel wet uh, when you put them together to make water? And there's nothing about the H2O molecule itself that would make you think of wet, but when it all goes together, it, it does feel wet. So you say that's an emergence. That's an emergent property of, of water molecules is that they feel wet when you get a lot of them together. But that's just a psychological thing. That is, there's nothing magical that's happening when the water molecules get together. It's just that psychologically we didn't anticipate that it would feel wet, and hey, we're surprised it does. 
And if emergence is really a psychological phenomenon, which again, I think a pretty good case can be made that it is, then it can't be used to explain the mind because it presupposes the mind. So I, to me, it's, it's smoke. It's just smoke and mirrors. It, 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 it doesn't really explain anything. Certainly, the, the things that emergence tries to explain are fascinating and important things. So, for example, the unity of conscious experience is very important. But I don't think saying that it's an emergent property explains anything. That's, 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 I, 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 I don't get the explanatory power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that has led me, I, 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 I don't have the same problem with Cartesian dual, dualism that a lot of, for example, materialists have, like problems with the interaction problem and so on. I, I, I think the interaction problem is, is sort of overdone. That is that if, if one accepts a mechanical understanding of nature, then yeah, there is an interaction problem because we, if in the mechanical understanding, uh, a lump of mass has to hit another lump of mass to make something happen, and obviously that can't be the case uh, with Cartesian dualism. But um, if one accepts a hylomorphic understanding of causation, which includes formal and final causes, uh, then you know immaterial things can cause all kinds of things that don't involve you know, matter hitting matter. So I don't think the interaction problem is such a big deal, although it's not a big deal if one does take a somewhat Aristotelian way of looking at nature. But the, 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 the big catch I have with Cartesian dualism is that it's too close to Cartesian metaphysics. And I think Cartesian metaphysics is a catastrophe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you could affirm. So the the kind of Cartesian commitment that I have, I, I could as I could easily affirm a sort of um, a Barclayan immaterialist conception of how God uh, God sort of sets up the world. Uh, I think um, I'm already as a as a sort of theist Cartesian already committed to some version of idealism as it stands. I mean, at some level. Uh, God is is the ultimate God's mind, and his his intentions are the ultimate causal explanation of the world, and that mind is what, at least in part, explains uh, values and um, the meaningfulness of natural events that uh, maybe themselves don't have, uh, apart from God's um, intending or conferring, um, they only have meaning in that sort of theistic context where God intends them in that way, um, something like a sort of personal idealism. So the commitment that I have to Cartesianism is fully compatible with that, but it's even compatible with a more robust Barclayan conception that says something like that bodies or material really is a fiction, at least a fiction in, in an ultimate sense. There is no substantial existence to the material. Uh, the material itself is, uh, well, it's phenomenal qualia that God communicates to created minds. And so we experience uh, the physical world as extrinsic or external to our minds, but it is something that God communicates to us that we, ex- uh, we experience, we have phenomenal experiences of. And um, the view that says that I am strictly speaking identical to my soul or my mind that is at the base what explains my consciousness and my freedom 
uh, freedom of the will and the fact that I am me and not someone else, that's uh, the important Cartesian claim um, that I think is is compatible with the sort of Barclayan idealism. I haven't gone there yet, but right. Uh, <laughs> right. but it is compatible. It is compatible with it. Yes, and I I do feel that the the sense that we are ourselves is something that is not well accounted for in the hylomorphic understanding, and uh, that, that that is a strength of the Cartesian perspective. Why don't we wrap this session up and. Joshua, I'm, I'm interviewing Joshua Ferris. Uh, this is Mike Egner, and please uh, stay tuned for our next discussion. Thank you. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.